I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. A really important and timely book will be released this week. It's titled A Field Guide to White Supremacy. And today's guest, professor and author Dr. Kathleen Ballou, joins me to discuss her new book. A Field Guide to White Supremacy is a collection of essays written by some of the most important voices, writers, scholars, and journalists, and it connects the dots showing how incidents of racial violence, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, sexual violence are all related. In my conversation with Ballou, we discuss her essay titled, There Are No Lone Wolves, The White Power Movement at War. And she does a deep dive into what white supremacy is and what it isn't, and how it differs from white nationalism and white power movements. She also talks about how a failure to connect individual acts of violence and failing to see their commonalities keeps us from adequately addressing the overarching problem of white supremacist violence. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Kathleen Ballou. Dr. Kathleen Ballou, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. First off, I have to say that I really enjoyed reading this book. It's important and it's timely. And the collection, it pulls together this incredible cast of talents. You know, the brain power in here is just amazing. You've got, you know, writers and journalists and activists and academics. Rebecca Solnit wrote an essay on rape culture and domestic violence. Jamel Bowie has one on an incredible essay, actually, on lynching and the racial terrorism associated with that. And there's one by Roderick Ferguson on homophobia and the Pulse nightclub shooting. And then Judith Butler wrote one on anti-Semitism. I mean, it really is an incredible collection. Where did the idea for this book come from? When did you have the original idea? So the idea came from my colleague Ramon Gutierrez, who was trying to put together a conference about different kinds of threads shaping discourse, violence, and inequality in the United States. So we brought together a number of scholars who worked on nativism, immigration, anti-immigration, hate crimes, and more. And then some people who are interested, as I am, in the white power movement and kind of militant right. And one striking thing about the way that we proceeded is that even in the academy, where we're very tuned to sort of analysis through systems, we don't always talk to each other very much about these things. So for instance, people who study anti-immigrant violence are largely rooted in um, ethnic studies programs in impacted communities. So those scholars tend to be in Latino, Latina studies or in Asian American studies or in South Asian immigration studies. Whereas people who study nativism, the white power movement tend not to be in area studies programs and are off doing that work elsewhere in the university. So we began by wanting to bring together the academic threads of the discussion. And that impulse collided with something that I noticed doing press for my first book, Bring the War Home, which is about white power activists, which is that journalists who are covering these things also don't have much of a primer on these topics and don't have much context for reporting on these events. So that was my next question. If you think that the lack of connectedness that you saw in academia spills over into like the public discourse and in the media, and is that a problem? Absolutely it is. So for instance, I at one point just picked up the Associated Press style book, which I remember, you know, having on hand when I worked for my college newspaper a million years ago as sort of the decisive piece of information about how we ought to think about and refer to complex topics. And I noticed right away that although the AP style book has very detailed entries about Islamic terrorism. It has hardly anything about white power terrorism. And this is in a moment when the DHS and FBI have decided that homegrown white power and militant right violence is the largest terrorist threat to the United States. So this is a matter of critical importance. And I think 
just the way that most newsrooms and most media organizations are staffed. I've spoken to so many people who are just kind of thrown into these stories and have to very quickly get up to speed. We don't have a lot of beat reporters who are assigned to dealing with anti-immigrant and anti-Black violence over time. And we don't have that many people who are really well-versed in the the long, durable histories of these phenomena. So the idea here was that we might, as academic experts, kind of collate some of the best thinking from across the academy to provide resources to reporters. You know, one of the things that you point out is that white supremacy is a complex web of ideologies and privileges and systems and, you know, et cetera. But you also point out that there's a difference between white nationalism and white power and even racism. So what is white supremacy specifically? What's the correct definition? And how is it not white power and how is it not white nationalism? So most academics understand white supremacy as something bigger than just individual belief. And that is to say that we think of white supremacy as a complex web of histories, beliefs, and systems of power that continue to produce and perpetuate racial inequality, even if individual belief in racism is not present. So one example of this might be the maternal death rate in the United States, which is far higher for African-American women than it is for white women. And that is not because every doctor in our nation is racist, far from it. It's because we have all kinds of different systems of inequality that contribute to that kind of an outcome. You can see similar differences across incarceration rates, education rates, wealth gaps. It goes on and on like this. And in some cases, white supremacy does refer to over racism. There are quite a number of people in our nation who believe that white people are superior to others. And then among that group, there is a small subset that believes that not only are white people superior, but that we must use racial violence in order to perpetuate the degree of power and also to protect the white birth rate so that white people remain in control of a homeland or a nation or even the world. And that little violent subset of overt racists is what I would think of as the white power movement. Now, white power as an ideology, of course, changes over time. So one of the things that's happening now is that we have a kind of white nationalism proper that is located in our policymaking, in the halls of power, that I think is distinct from sort of on the ground, on the streets, white power organizing, which is much more paramilitary in nature, much more secretive and much more overtly violent. But I think that those two wings of thinking have come together in some really problematic ways um, in the Trump years. And certainly we saw that on January. January 6th. No, you're right. It is really complicated. And and I'm curious as to, you know, going back to my my last question about, about newsrooms and journalists, how should they be staffed to cover this correctly, given that it is so complex? You know, I'm um, having never worked in a newsroom. I think I'm the wrong <laughs> person to sort of make uh, resource recommendations. But I do think that, you know, as with any sort of long term threat to the American body politic that is interested in deception, This is going to take some investment and some education to get the kind of reporting that we need in order to confront the threat. So um, this is a movement that has since the early 1980s, the white power movement has been interested in deliberately obscuring itself as a social movement, trying to put forward a fiction of lone wolf actors in order to distract us from the very real social movement that has coordinated violence. It's been responsible for enormous mass casualty events like the Oklahoma City bombing that I think most people still don't understand. I mean, Oklahoma is the, that is the largest deliberate mass casualty event in the United States between 
Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And I think many people still think of it as the work of one or a few people, when in fact it is the work of a social movement that is still with us and is still taking anti-democratic action today. So I think that, you know, journalism is one part of a social response that would be required to adequately confront a movement like that. It's not the only one. And I certainly don't mean to say that journalists are responsible for the situation we find ourselves in or, or even that the structure of media is responsible. I think white power is a movement that has been with us for so long because it's been able to monopolize on many different kinds of failures and misunderstandings, ranging from law enforcement resource allocation to the way that the laws are written, to jury bias, to journalistic portrayal, to, you know, will at the top when we're talking about public policymaking. And I think that right now, the good news is that people have focused on this as a problem and as a threat. And I think that what journalists must do is figure out how to tell stories about this that shine light instead of confuse the issue. No, and that brings us to your essay, which is titled, There are no lone wolves, the white power movement at war. And in that essay, you point out that the lone wolf narrative, it relies on a failure of storytelling, right? Storytelling that connects the dots for these events, right? Like, for instance, Dylan Roof, when, you know, when he murdered nine people in the Charleston church massacre or Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, how are these not lone wolf crimes, right? How are they connected to a larger framework? Yeah. So one example of this, and um. I'll, I'll just say first that I think the reason this happens is that when we have a mass shooting with ideological meaning, it's it's very common that we all hurry into breaking news mode. And that's not just reporters. I mean, we all do that. Consumers of these stories do the same thing. So it's very common to get a story that is highly specific and highly informed by local context. And that's not bad. But what it means is that we get stories about the Charleston shooting as an act of anti-Black violence. The El Paso shooting is an act of anti-Latino or anti-immigrant violence. The Christchurch shooting as anti-Muslim or Islamophobic violence and the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting as anti-Semitic violence. And they are anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant and anti-Black and Islamophobic acts, right? But they are also all white power violence. They are committed by people who share an ideology, share um, aspects of armament, of selection of target, of uh, the way they phrase a manifesto, and are all part of a connected ideology and a connected social movement. And that filling in of the connections between the events, I think, is the really difficult part to do in real time without a historical archive without the benefit of hindsight that I and my fellow contributors enjoy in this volume. And I think this is where the history and the sociology and the legal studies can really round out what journalists are able to do in the moment. But there's kind of a circular motion to the way that we talk about these things, right? Because like you mentioned, so, you know, newsrooms will go into breaking breaking news mode, right? And that informs the public discourse and how we talk about these things in, in the public, right? Amongst, you know, voters and constituents. And then that informs possibly, you know, the policy. Is that is that a correct way of looking at this? Absolutely. And I think also there is a moment of public attention that can be called upon to make real changes to policy. But often that moment goes by so quickly that even people who are in favor of doing something about this have moved on by the time we get information about the ideological underpinnings of a mass violent event. Are there other movements that communicate these things better? Like I'm thinking about the progression of reproductive justice and how we now talk about that, you know, publicly and how the media talks about that. I mean, they seem to have gotten the main tenets of what is reproductive justice or what reproductive rights are in a way that they haven't quite understood this. 
That's an interesting question. I mean, one of the ways of thinking about this is that we can't see all of it happening in real time. Um, so, you know, in Bring the War Home, which is where if people would like to read about all of the ways we know that the Oklahoma City bombing was connected to a movement, it's a full chapter of that book. And, um, you know, it would take more time than we have today for me to detail all those connections. But that kind of wide view analysis relies on historical distance. It relies on a big archival footprint of declassified information and people leaving the movement and talking about their experiences, um, court cases, record keeping, all kinds of measures that are not just what people say they're doing, which is sort of the limit of a lot of present day analysis, be it sociological or journalistic, but also how their actions match what they say they're doing over time. And I think that this is one of the places where the discipline of history just has something to offer that others don't have, which is that we can do that long, wide view analysis and see the way that this ideology has propelled people over the long term. And I think that that shines light on how it's working today. So, I mean, one way to think about this in real time is you can be a fantastic beat reporter assigned to, say, the Proud Boys. You can cover every Proud Boys action. You can follow everything the group says, and you're still looking at one shard of this broader groundswell of militant right and white power activity, which has to be a wider angle than just that one group. It has to trace networks. It has to trace social connections. It has to understand transnational movement of people and ideas. And then it also has to understand the relationship. And this is always quite complex to articulate between public facing groups like Proud Boys and underground groups like Adam Waffen and the base and individual driven leaderless actions like the ones we've just been talking about that result in mass violence. All of those are part of one big swell of activity. There are different parts, but if you were going to have a beat, that's the beat, not even not one of these pieces. And I'm very sympathetic to how hard it is to cover all of that at once. But the connective work is really what would make a difference to thinking about it differently and in ways that could create lasting change. Right. And I, and I think that it can happen. I believe it can happen. I think that's what you're aiming at with this book. I mean, I guess my point was, is I, I've seen that trajectory around other issues like climate change and around, you know, like I said, reproductive justice. I think we've become more sophisticated about how we talk about these things. And so I think that, you know, having books like this, you know, are, are a beginning. And, and by the way, I, I bought um, Bring the War Home, you know, because you reference it in your essay and it just looks really fascinating. And I think in that one, you are making the connection between the Vietnam War and some of these other movements, the white power movement and white nationalism. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things about um, white power activity and Klan activity over sort of the long 20th century is that the most consistent predictor for surges in this kind of thing is not populism or poverty or anti-immigration sentiment. It is the aftermath of warfare. So part of that has to do with the targeted recruitment of veterans as sort of a mechanism for escalating violence within these groups. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that everyone in American society across all measures becomes more violent after warfare. And that that indicator is it cuts across age, it cuts across gender, it cuts across who has and has not served. So there's something about that period that is open to violent activism. And, you know, we are now in this period of the aftermath of the global war on terror that 
you know, before the fall of Afghanistan this summer, my students at the University of Chicago did not remember, they don't remember 9-11. They didn't remember a time when we were not at war. So the, the, the profound impact of that aftermath period being so long and so drawn out, I think is one of the huge pieces of contextual information that we'll have to grapple with in order to address some of the concerns that we bring up in this collection. And you don't talk about this specifically in, in this essay, but why doesn't it have the same effect? And maybe you go into this in your other book. Why does that not spill over into other communities, some of these marginalized communities? Because they participate in war as well. You oh, know, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it does. And we we recognize um, paramilitarism in other places, you know, in, in the historiography. So thinking about the aftermath of the Vietnam War, we also saw intense activism by the Black Panthers, by the Brown Berets, by East Wind, all kinds of other groups became paramilitary in that time period. One really big difference that I found in my research is that left-wing groups do not tend to have the same hyperfixation on armament and especially on guns, and therefore are usually less well-armed than white right-wing groups. So if we think, for instance, of the clash between paramilitary right-wing groups in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1979, which is a caravan of neo-Nazis and Klansmen against a sort of revolutionary leftist workers party. Both sides had guns. Both sides were prepared to use violence, as they said, ahead. But one side had things like single shot revolvers and the other side had things like military grade automatic and semi-automatics. So just the difference in armament is huge. And the, the escalation of the Vietnam War is also important because the technologies of killing after Vietnam are just exponentially higher than at any other point in American history. And we have that legacy shaping um, violent activism today as well. Well, that's fascinating. I can't wait to read that book, Bring the War Home. Um, but back to this one. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the most important things and, and fascinating things that you point out in your essay is how these movements benefit from, like like we talked about earlier, the narrative of the lone wolf and the idea that there's this leaderless resistance, right? You know, this kind of cell-like terror. Um, how is that advantageous to them? So leaderless resistance was a strategy for effectively cell-style terrorism that was implemented across the white power movement in the early 1980s, around the same time that they declared war on the federal government and really became a revolutionary movement. Um, and the reason that they sought leaderless resistance to begin with is that these groups had been widely infiltrated by FBI and other kinds of government agents in the civil rights era. And they were really frustrated about that. And they also wanted to make it harder to prosecute white power leaders, especially, but also activists in court. And leaderless resistance took care of both of those things quite well, but it's had a longer impact on our society, which is that it also created this narrative of the lone wolf in which what we usually see on the other side of these court prosecutions is one or a few people instead of the social movement. And in some points um, across the history of this activity, that has even hampered our ability to prosecute this movement adequately. So for instance, there was a string of mistakes and failed prosecutions in the late 1980s and early 90s, including a seditious conspiracy trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1987-88 that went wildly off the rails. And then tragedies that were also PR disasters at Waco and Ruby Ridge in the early 1990s. And after all of those events, there was a policy change at the FBI to prosecute 
only individual actors and not to go after the whole white power movement. That was a a policy on a piece of paper that one journalist observed. That's the policy we had in place when the Oklahoma City uh, federal building blew up. And so already we were limited by this idea of the lone actor or a few bad apples and not interested, not really oriented towards looking at the broad social movement. And that's a problem when we have information like that supposed lone actor, Timothy McVeigh, had, you know, stayed at a the house of one militiaman who had thought so much about blowing up that particular building that he could draw it from memory. This is a building that that movement had been trying to blow up in one way or another since 1983. So for more than a decade, it had been interested in in that particular target. The date of the bombing was not only on the anniversary of the Waco siege, but also on the planned execution date of an activist from a, a group called the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, who had been involved in trying to blow up that particular building. So we know that that there was a broader story to tell, but the way that that was narrated, prosecuted, and after McVeigh's death, Um, his execution, we really have this durable myth of the Oklahoma City bombing as sort of like one disaffected or maybe a few disaffected radicals. And that becomes really important for things like January 6th, when people are still claiming that this is, you know, we have narratives about January 6th already, not just, oh, it was a normal tourist visit, but like that myth of this is not who we are, that myth of this came out of nowhere, we know better than that from the recent history. So this volume is interested in really correcting some of those misunderstandings. So you mentioned that there was an FBI policy change that, you know, they they could only, I think it was, they could only prosecute one person or go after one person and not an entire organization. Why was that made? So there were a number of embarrassing failures for the Department of Justice um, in the late 80s and early 1990s. The biggest one was a federal sedition conspiracy trial where the government tried to prove that 13 people in the movement were guilty of charges, including seditious conspiracy, which is to say that they had violently attempted to overthrow the United States. And, um, you know, this sounds far-fetched, but they did have a plan to do this. They talked about doing it, and they were outfitted not only with the usual automatic and semi-automatic weapons, but also with things like anti-tank law rockets and homemade napalm and, and things like that. So these activists were definitely trying to do that. There were issues with this trial. So these included two of the jurors had romantic relationships with defendants during the trial. There were chain of custody issues with a lot of the evidence that was persuasive. There were examples of juror bias. And what with one thing and another, uh, this big trial just completely failed. The headline that ran in one newspaper was jubilant racists win trial. Um, And afterward, they immediately doubled down on their activity. One of the main defendants even started a periodical called The Seditionist. And so that was, you know, an incredible embarrassment for the Department of Justice, as well as the failure of a whole bunch of resources um, being directed towards this problem. This was almost immediately followed by sieges at Ruby Ridge, which was a federal siege of a white power family, um, and at Waco, which was a federal siege of a multiracial apocalyptic group. Um, And both of those ended disastrously with people being killed um, by government snipers and and government power, um, in the case of Waco, directly on public television. And after that is when, when this policy seems to have been adopted, where 
the idea was, okay, we're not going to try to go after this whole movement because it doesn't go well. We're going to instead focus only on individual actors and their crimes and not on the movement as a whole. So that's the policy that was on the books when McVeigh blew up the building in Oklahoma City. And we know that he was deeply connected to the white power movement in a whole bunch of different ways. But from the beginning, the investigation was narrowly targeted. That still does not sound logical to me or rational, right? Because it's persistent for one. I can't make the connection between like these cases have gone bad. Therefore, (laughs) we need to institute this policy, you know, long term where we only go after one person. I just don't. Well, you know, one of the things to remember is that our, our law enforcement is tied to a whole bunch of different obligations. It operates based on allocation of resources, allocation of manpower, allocation of political will. So our law enforcement and surveillance communities are constantly having to readjust what they're doing based on political pressure. So one of the interesting things in the FBI archive about this is just the, there are, I forget uh, how big it is, but there's a bunch of file folders just full of angry letters after Waco about how could you do this? This is a betrayal of the American nation. Like, how can you possibly bring down the power of the state in this way upon American citizens? And so it's a fight about public opinion all along the way. I mean, we're seeing this after January 6th, too. So we could think about kind of the long history of how surveillance communities have responded to this problem as being heavily inflected by public will and public capacity to respond, and also by kind of the limits of our policymakers. So in the 60s, for instance, um, and before when when the FBI was involved in the counterintelligence projects, Um, COINTELPRO, that was supposed to disrupt, infiltrate and disrupt extremist groups, right? But we know that the overwhelming majority of the money, resources, and manpower went towards disrupting groups on the left and not towards disrupting groups on the right. So everyone was infiltrated, but no, nowhere did we see things like the assassination of Fred Hampton in groups on the right right? Um, Moving forward, we can see that things like 9-11 pulled resources away from looking at domestic terrorism and towards looking at jihadism abroad. And so these are always battles over political perception and political will. Only just now in the last few years has a surveillance community sort of come around to to, to devoting its full attention to this problem. And I'm, I'm very grateful to the people that are behind that change and that are doing that work. So the, the idea of the, the leaderless resistance, is there one central organizing group or person? No, that's a great question. In other words, I think your question is sort of like, if there's no leader, how do they coordinate all of this stuff that they're doing? Exactly. And it seems complicated yeah. and big, but if you it's, can. No, it's a really great question. And the answer is, it's a, you know, it's an argument. And it's a really big mess. And actually, this is true of I I would challenge people to find one social movement after about the mid 20th century where this is not the case, where there are not multiple personalities pulling things in different directions and a whole bunch of disagreement about what people should be doing and when um, and a whole bunch of sort of um, conflict about the outcomes people are pursuing. So one of the answers is that there's a lot of cultural material that provides information about how they are meant to coordinate this violence. One of the most important pieces of this is the Turner Diaries, which is a dystopian novel that was written in the late 1970s and really became a cultural centerpiece and a manual of operations for this movement to use in its leaderless resistance violence. And, you know, it's um, if you ever go and read the Turner Diaries, please 
please go and find a pirated copy somewhere and do not go buy this book because <laughs> yeah. the money still goes back to some of these groups. Um, but you'll, you'll notice if you read this book that it is not a particularly good book, right? It's not good on, on its own terms as a novel. The reason it's so important to this movement is that it provides a set of actions that people can take part of which is is leaderless resistance and cell style guerrilla warfare to seize a white homeland seize a nuclear weapon seize the united states and then eventually create a white planet through genocide and biological warfare and um, we know how important this book was because it shows up in the archive over and over and over again. Things like they gave the book out free at the rallies of the White Patriot Party in North Carolina. They kept a stack of like 15 of them in the bunkhouse of the order, which hardly ever had 15 people even staying there at one time. Timothy McVeigh distributed this book on the gun show circuit. There's footage going around from before January 6th of the Proud Boys uh, marching and telling a journalist to go read the Turner Diaries if you'd like to understand what we're doing here. So we know that this is sort of one way of coordinating leaderless resistance violence, which is to sort of lay out what are the targets, what are the broad goals, and here are some concrete plans that you can use. So the Oklahoma City bombing is is loosely based on the bombing of, of an FBI fingerprint center in the Turner Diaries. It also lays out a whole bunch of other things that have been used by this movement, like infrastructure attacks, um, attacks on nuclear power plants, or attempts to provoke a nuclear accident and the targeted assassination of different kinds of enemies. The Turner Diaries also has an event in it that is very similar to January 6th, which is a mortar attack on the Capitol building. And in contrast to a whole bunch of huge acts of violence in the book, including, as I said, genocide, that attack is not imagined as an act of mass violence. It's imagined as a sort of selective strike that is meant to quote unquote, awaken other white people to the cause and to recruit and radicalize others. Now, January 6th, to be sure, is not exclusively a white power movement action. I think that white power and militant right activists represent one of sort of three streams of people who were there that day that that became sort of active in that moment. But the white power movement is also of those three streams, the one with the most sort of infrastructure resources that point it toward violence and the one with decades, if not generations of history behind it that we can read in order to understand what it's doing. So I think we're still on the track of the Turner Diaries. And I think that this is all still in play. Wow. So I'm, I'm curious as to, because one of the things that you point out is because we are, we still don't fully understand the organizational power and the connectedness of, of white supremacy and all of these movements that that has led us to these piecemeal approaches, right? We don't actually have a, a coordinated response um, to, I guess, you know, rid our culture of white supremacy. So are there policy, you know, solutions to this or legislative solutions or, you know, what can we do? Thank you for that question. That's one of the things that this book is trying to do that I think Bring the War Home wasn't able to do just because of the way it was timed. So A Field Guide to White Supremacy is really meant as a set of jumping off points for action and for having these conversations at a whole bunch of different levels. So for instance, one of the things that I've been talking about a lot with people who are consulting is the problem of monitoring for selective white power recruitment in, um, in the armed forces and also in police departments. This book really helps us get at one of the embedded problems in resolving that issue, which is that, you know, 
I live in Chicago. It's really clear from watching the coverage of improper use of force uh, against communities of color in Chicago that one of the problems is that police who have had a conviction for improper use of force can simply move down the road to another police department because there's no record keeping mechanism for tracking that behavior. That's one of the ways that we know that there's no record-keeping mechanism for tracking white power targeted recruitment within police departments either. So it is through the intersection of those two histories that we see, aha, we need to keep some kind of record that is bigger than individual police departments, and we need to figure out how to track that those problems. So within this uh, volume, we have, you know, you can look at my essay and then read it alongside work by Kianga Yamada-Taylor, who has written about kind of the systematic devaluation of Black communities, alongside the work of Joseph Darda, who has written about the the Blue Lives Matter uh, movements, racial politics, alongside other essays that sort of flesh this out. And the idea is that we can see all of these stories interlocking and that people can come to this book as a starting point for going to read more. Everyone who's in this volume has written um, extensively on the topic that we've asked them to contribute and also has many, many footnotes that will direct you to additional excellent scholarly conversations about these issues. Now, thank you for mentioning that because I, I was actually going to ask you about and mention that essay by Joseph Darda, The Whiteness, I think it's titled The Whiteness of Blue, of Blue Lives, Race and American Policing or Race and America Policing. And he goes into detail about the police, um, the Protect and Serve Act, which is basically the Blue Lives Matter Bill. And that's just a really fascinating essay and chapter in this book. So, you know, listeners, you know, when they pick up this book, you know, definitely make sure not to skip over this one. And, you know, one of the things that I like about the way the book's, book is structured is that it's so it's so broad, right? You cover all of the tenets of white supremacy. I was really surprised to see how many of these events fit under that umbrella. And also, mm-hmm. you know, each of the chapters, they're, they're, they're fairly short. I mean, they're like, you know, maybe five to, to eight pages long. And but you cover it from end to end. And I think that's probably a nod to editing. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, it's really excellent. And I hope everyone reads it. I would add that unlike all edited collections, we hope that this one has a comprehensive and usable index so that people can pick it up and find the thing that they want to read about. Because, you know, one of the other problems we have, I think, often in creating public work from academic scholarship is usability across sort of the terms of the discussion. Um, So we've tried to address that in this volume. I hope people will be able to use it. And if not, you know, shoot me an email. I'm happy to try to help you find the piece you're looking for. All right. Well, Dr. Kathleen Ballou, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This is an excellent book. I really enjoyed it. And I will also pick up your your other book, Bring the War Home. Actually, it's on its way. Um, And thank you again. Thank you for all of your work. Oh, thank you, Jen. It was a pleasure. 